Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Lifters League podcast, the Muscle and Strength Science podcast. My name is Ben Ashmole. I'm joined here as always by elite powerlifting and strength coach Gus Cook. And we've got some awesome guests today. Hey, Gus. So today we got uh, Kyle and Brandon from Kabuki Strength. Uh, Brandon's the head coach and direct, director of education. All right. Yep. And Kyle is also a strength coach. What actually? What is your title, Kyle? There. Uh, coach. I do sales for the company too. I graciously gave myself the senior international coach title. Oh, nice. Really, I am one of our uh, head strength coaches, main strength coaches. Cool. All right. Well. Um, I guess some of the things uh, I've been excited to get you guys on because the things I'm most in, interested about about your guys' approach is definitely how you guys utilize more data, science-based methods to approach into programming. So I was hoping we we're going to have a bit of a programming discussion. Hopefully, it can lead into some few other things I've been watching you guys about and wanted to pick your brain, pick your brain on. Um, I guess one of the, f uh, I guess one of the first things that's been on my mind, especially during this whole um, pandemic, I've had to take a very long off-season approach to a lot of the powerlifters I've got, and so over time developing, you know, I guess unique and different methodologies. I mean, how have you guys? What do you guys do for a let's say a long off-season approach to? powerlifting how do you progress so what kind of methodology you guys use well i think it, it depends on the specific situation um with the instance of this hey sorry are you guys getting a lot of feedback on this a little not bit a little bit but not much okay yeah just let me know if it gets bad i'm not really sure what's causing that um, so in the, in the case that it's this, uh, coronavirus stuff, a lot of people don't have access to their gyms or normal training equipment. Um, there's, there's really not a lot you can do. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. there's not a lot you can do to replace resistance like a barbell would, uh, like, like a barbell uses. Uh, one strategy that we've used for athletes who are out of the gym, they don't have normal training equipment, is to use BFR. Um, BFR training blood flow restriction, or uh, some people call it occlusion training, is a great way to stimulate similar muscle fibers as are used in really heavy weight training. Uh, but you need minimal equipment. In fact, you can even use body weight uh, to to get a similar effect. Now, the main effect is acute. There is a small systemic effect with BFR training, but it's not going to give you these same uh, neuromuscular coordination benefits that hard barbell training would. So it's a good option, but it's not, um, it's not great, I would say. Beyond that, uh, we can do a lot from a movement standpoint, but that's only going to take people so far um, unfortunately with, uh, with a lot of the restrictions of people not having access to their regular training, there's just not a ton that you can do. Tell us a little bit more about this blood flow restriction. I mean, how's that stimulating? How's that particularly stimulates growth? I mean, restricting blood flow to a good Yeah, so it, one of the myths is that it's, um, 
it's similar to a tourniquet and it's not. So uh, a lot of old school bodybuilders or strength athletes would just tie knee wraps or floss bands around a joint and they would use those. However, the problem with that is that you can't control the tightness of the wrap consistently. So from left to right, you can't control uh, it. Well, you can make it tighter or not, but you don't have a way of measuring that, which can be a problem. There is a potential to cause nerve damage, among other things, if the wrap is too tight. So uh, anytime you use BFR cuffs, you have to use BFR cuffs. Or if anytime you use BFR training, you have to use BFR cuffs. There's a lot of manufacturers selling pretty good ones right now. They're a little pricey, but uh, you can pick up a, a set in the in the $500 range, which is what we sell is the B3 Sciences cuff. But the, the high and low on BFR training is by reducing the venous outflow of, uh, of blood. Uh, you increase the uh, amount of metabolites within that uh, local area, you uh, you and you're really able to get into some of the muscle fibers that are more active at uh, heavier weights. Um, there's a ton of um, science that other people can probably speak to that better than I can, but um, it's it can be a very effective way to supplement your training. Uh, Kyle's using a little bit of that in his training right now for a few reasons, but. Um, it's, uh, there's, there's different recommendations on how to use it based on the sport, based on, uh, the athlete themselves. Uh, you can really stimulate a ton of acute damage with BFR training, um, or you can, uh, potentially, uh, not if, you know, if done properly. So it's a better focus for well, uh, m- more muscle recruitment or, or strength, strength, um, yeah, it really or just more potentiation. Um, how good an athlete is at shuttling metabolic waste. So if you have an athlete who is more endurance-based, you have someone uh, like a CrossFitter or someone who can tolerate very large amounts of volume, uh, they probably aren't going to get super sore from BFR training. But if you take a powerlifter who has been doing low-volume work and you do BFR training really intensively, uh, it, it can be very difficult. Uh, damaging from a, from a muscular damage, uh, in, from a stimulating hypertrophy standpoint. I guess and how about a, a different, a different approach then, because competitions have been a little bit more scarce, scarce here. So, but we, a lot of us have still have access to gyms right now. Um, yeah. So it's probably, it's probably worth, um, pretty kind of qualifying that obviously you guys are in the States. We're here in Australia. We're, we're specifically in Queensland where, we've been blessed with very few cases. So we're, we're kind of open. We're still socially distancing, but we're, we're pretty much open, right? The gyms are open. Yeah, but there's been no, there's been no competitions. I think there's been yeah. um, one. So a lot of the athletes I work with, I mean, most of the time they don't want to take, they're probably going to at least compete like twice a year or so. So normally, you know, the off season time or the time uh, away from competition, perhaps only like anywhere between, you know, three, maybe up to five months at a time before they want to do, before they come and get ready for a, another competition. So, I mean, what would, so a lot of these people have been forced to take now 12 plus months or so. So what, what are your guys, what are your guys some approach with obviously access to the gym or just long term, uh, just general approach to long-term off season training? Well, I for- think one of the, one of the unique things that this has provided, whether somebody has gym access or not, 
you know, as a coach, I always have my goals for my athletes. They always have their goals and those should obviously intermingle and those should, should match at some point in time. But when we're forced to take a step back outside of my plan, outside of their plan and look at long-term development, Brandon talked on, you know, movement quality and technique work. It allows us the opportunity to look deeper at the program. What's missing? What does this athlete truly need from a developmental standpoint versus, um, well, we only have three months, so they need this, but we have to get them to point A in two months and three months. So it's provided a very unique opportunity uh, for us to, you know, that's what we do best is, you know, custom one-on-one training to look more in depth. What does the athlete need in long-term development? Um, and the other with, uh, with a lot of meets being canceled, I know I was looking at doing two more this year and I told Brandon for my programming, you know, we're just going to put it on the date. Uh, or on the calendar and just pick a date because I want to continue to move forward. So the strategy is fairly the same. I'm not going to be on the platform, but I'm going to be in the gym working up to, you know, testing and peaking. But if it wasn't for that, just sticking with the numbers, the biggest thing that I look for right now is the opportunity to um, look deeper into their development um, outside of time constraint goals because it's kind of open right now. Mm. So a unique opportunity to dive deeper into what they you know, maybe truly need from an athlete standpoint versus what do we want in short term progress? Yeah, and for me, um, for me, it's similar. Kyle, can you mute, mute yourself when I'm talking? Um, for me, it's it's similar. Um, I also take more of an approach to muscular development. Uh, yeah, that's way better. I was hearing myself <laughs> twice in my years. Uh, I, anytime we have a really long off season for strength athletes, my number one focus, assuming that they don't need some ultra restorative phase, um, is, is to build muscle. Uh, so I don't, I, in, I usually have a conversation with them about this because kind of have to let go of some of the comp lifts. Uh, we'll use things that are larger ranges of motion and we'll intentionally use large range of motions in all movements. The squat tends to have a similar range of motion regardless of exercise you choose because you're really squatting as deep as you can or to depth. Um, a deadlift, though, we can use deficit deadlifts. We can do things in higher volumes such as RDLs. Stiff leg deadlifts are two of my mainstays in almost all off-season programs. I love loading up a ton of volume in those two movements. They tend to be pretty safe and they can really blow up lifters, hamstrings, lower backs in a good way. Um, and then for the bench press, it's really all about flat back bench pressing, bench pressing with a duffel bar, bench pressing on an incline bench with various grips, uh, Cadillac bar, things that increase the range of motion. Um, and most all accessory exercises are focused in that same vein. I, 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 whenever I look at exercises for hypertrophy for strength athletes, we, we look at things that have a very high mechanical advantage of things that, um, things such as barbell movements, but things that are in large ranges of motion. So I don't want to do things like tricep kickbacks and complete isolation movements like that. I'd rather do flat back, close grip bench presses. I'd rather do medium grip, duffalo bar, buffalo bar presses, things that use really large ranges of motion to stimulate more hypertrophy. They're going to get stronger doing that too. Uh, and they're going to have a pretty quick, um, a pretty quick reacclimation to heavier weights because they can shorten the range of motion. But a lot of the the training is is really focused around that. We'll also take the time to really train movements heavy, uh, but in very low ratios. So if I have someone who, you know, is taking eight months away, I can't necessarily take 
even though that's kind of a long time on paper, if you figure there's going to be, you know, three months of competition prep, uh, you have to go through a couple strength phases during that time too. You really don't have all that. You don't have eight months of hypertrophy training, eight months to get big. So we need to use maintenance styles of loading. And that's not, uh, that's, that doesn't imply low volume loading. Maintenance loading to me is maintaining some type of training adaptation from a prior block. Most of the times prior blocks in this situation are strength blocks. So, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing hard competition variations, but if we're eight to 12 months out, I might ask my guys to do a very hard snatch grip block deadlift. It's like singles, doubles, triples, things that are very mechanically demanding, but ultimately they're not going to be that heavy. They're still going to force the athlete to strain really hard, which is what I'm looking for. Um, and so we might include that in a, in a very low ratio though. It has to be a ratio that doesn't, interfere with the amount of volume they're capable of uh, accumulating. So if somebody can do, I don't know, 20 hard sets of, um, of deadlifts in a week, and that's across all barbell variations, I don't want to do something like a deficit deadlift to a single for their maintenance loading, because that's likely to cause a large pool of fatigue, which will negatively impact how much total volume they can do. Because volume is still the number one driver for us that far out in those large range of motion movements that are very highly, uh, that, that have a high mechanical advantage or, um, or, or are very mechanically stimulated. I'm, I'm, there's another word that I'm looking for there. It's not that it's, you know, if we think of barbell lifts versus isolation movements, even though it's like muscle building time, we're still not doing a ton of, you know, just purely isolation movements. We're doing big barbell lifts for high volumes, things that they can accumulate a lot of volume in. And that's takes up the majority of the year. I want to, of that phase anyway, we'll still do some hard stuff in there, but it's a lot of volume in really big range of motion lifts. How are you accumulating? Do you accumulate the volume, total volume of all variations in a, say like a deadlift movement and you're looking at progressing overall volume, um, overall tonnage for barbell based deadlift movements? Yeah, yeah it, it always kind of depends on how you want to look at it. I do typically look at barbell variations, um, but even then it's not always that uh, reflective because if I'm doing tons of good mornings versus tons of barbell rows or even RDLs, it, it just still gets kind of messy. So I'm still looking at a few lifts in progressing those lifts. And I'm going to assume that everything else that they're doing in their training plan is uh, kind of filling in any gaps. So if we're deadlifting, you know, in an off season, we still probably only have like two main exercises that we're really looking to progress and everything else is kind of filler. It could be our deficit deadlifts. It could be RDLs. It could be stiff leg deadlifts. It could be snatch grip deadlifts, which I have been really liking the past probably year for a lot of guys. Uh, those are going to be my main lifts that I'm really looking to progress. I've even been doing a lot of RDL type movements, but we call them uh, like deficit stop and go deadlifts without touching the floor. So they're kind of like a full range of motion RDL. It's great for accumulating a ton of volume. Um, so I'm not, I think if you look at the total totality of volume, it gets very messy and it's not useful. But if we look at just a few lifts and over the course of a block, block to block, if I can add 
um, a, like one set or two sets to each of those over the course of two blocks what, without dramatically increasing fatigue, then we've probably done a really good job. So um, they're not massive changes that are happening, but um, you know, even when you increase the range of motion of a, of a movement, it's, it's kind of like adding another set to your um, lower range of motion movements. Not, you know, you'd have to do the math on the range of motion there, but over time it does add up. So you so you'll you'll count, you'll just you'll pick the ones you want to count like or high load kind of or high stress yeah. exercises and then I, and then keep the accessories like like a lat pull down separate. Yeah, exactly. And I honestly I very rarely look at total volume too. I, anytime I talk total volume and things of that nature, it's it's uh, it's it's more or less in the sense of. Um, description so when we say volume people imply that that means work so i don't always mean volume sets times reps times load what i the the, the variables that i monitor the most closely are the average loading of my lifters the within a parameter of number of reps completed so uh, say they're you know in, in a given training block uh, high volume training block they might be doing eight seven sixes uh, i'm not going to look at anything beyond those and I want to look at the average load improvements they make, as well as the rate of difficulty increase. Uh, if we see average loading going up over the course of a few blocks without their difficulty skyrocketing, uh, we'll, we'll look at total number of sets completed. Um, but that's really sets only really gets us to a specific difficulty number that we want. And we use a one to five scale um, and uh, and we look at average load. I look at average load. Kyle might look at other things. I look at average load. Uh, average number of reps completed and the rate of difficulty increase to to gauge progress over the course of multiple locks. So you're looking at so just to clarify, you're looking at the total the total load for that for that single I guess exercise, and you're progressing that only with you're only tracking to progress that within a rep range. We'll say between six and eight. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're yeah. I think I've seen you guys do that with. Um, looking at your guys' programs, do that with RPE as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does that work yeah. for you guys? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really similar. So RPE, we use um, an RPE scale. So we, we very rarely tell people that do add a nine or add a 10. We're usually telling them to keep one to two reps in the tank, two to three reps in the tank. So it gives us a little bit of flexibility there. But the reason that we like that um, is it gives us uh, some flexibility in loading day to day. I don't know that there's a huge difference in you know three percent bar load, which a lot of this ends up equating if you get to the higher percentages of, or the higher ratings of RPE. Um, but uh, oftentimes we'll start most blocks at a moderate RPE to or rep in reserve range to get people acclimated to the template. We use that uh, a lot of my very first blocks in our training plan are pretty consistent. They're two or three sets across the board, uh, almost regardless of the exercise. It gives me really consistent data based on the effort that the athlete reports to me. Uh, And then week two, we adjust volume accordingly. um, And we try to get better within those RPE ranges. So um, it might be, you know, if, if someone is doing squats we might look at squats for five reps with a rpe range or rep and reserve range of one to two in the tank and i want to push their loads as high as we can while maintaining 
that range. Mm-hmm. I find that if you introduce a lot of variability week to week, it becomes hard to track progress or to gauge progress. Uh, I also think most strength athletes need uh, more consistent exposures to similar adaptations in order to fully um, adapt to it, which is usually the end goal. Um, so I tend to try to get my lifters to get really good in one specific range and then move on from there. And there's always wiggle room to that. that that's not a strict rule by any means. Um, but you know, it's, it's very uncommon that I would ever start a training block with eights and end at fives. Um, the, the, the load swing from that's pretty dramatic. The volume tolerance between that's pretty dramatic. And I would almost, uh, try, I would almost use a different training block completely. If I were to make that big of a change, talking about a single exercise, for example, would you move, let's say you went, would you do, would you change the amount of, I guess, sets and volume you would do? per RPE compared to the eight, eight RPE to nine RPE. Because if you, just for example, if you were to give me only two sets at eight RPE, I'm more likely to go pretty damn heavy in my mm-hmm. second one. But if I have five sets or so, I, I know to be conservative. Yeah. Um, what's your approach to, to that? I, I think a lot of that comes down to coaching and knowing who you're working with. Because, you know, there's always, these are broad generalities that we're using here. Um, you know, for example, if, if I have a guy like Duffin, um, and we're writing his program and he sees that he has one set, he will definitely go as heavy as he can on that one set. So we almost have to knock him down a couple pegs and, and, uh, um, and start a little bit higher, you know? Um, so I think part of that is knowing your lifter. Another thing that I would do in that situation is, uh, try to approximate the, uh, bar load as close as I could. So, and whenever we use RPEs, uh, we're always striving to use a load range with that as well. And the reason that we use a load range with an RPE is, is to help athletes really zone in on their targets for the day and not go well over or well below. And we use historical data for that. Um, but yeah, if I, if I have a lifter who, you know, a lot of lifters um, that I've worked with for a long time, I don't have to do something like this because I have a lot of historical data on them too. Um, what I meant by a new training block would be like a new athlete to me. So if I didn't really know what they could tolerate, I didn't know how they would respond. I'm just going to go consistent across the board to gather a little bit of data um, in their very first week. But if I have someone I've been working with for a long time, like Kyle, um, I already kind of know where his, uh, where his volume tolerance is. Um, uh, from block to block and, and scheme to scheme. So are you using the that one to five scale feedback as kind of your gauge to people's recovery from a certain amount of volume? Kind of. Um, you know, it's an imperfect science for sure. The one to five scale that we use is a descriptor for effort and it's not a strict scale. I, I, when we implemented it, we wanted to get into the athlete's head a little bit more. So we, we didn't want to have a strict definition for what every rating is because we really wanted to see what their perception of effort was. And that's why it's pretty open-ended. So a one for us is easy and a five is pushing the limit. And we want to just see to you perceptively how hard did that feel? How hard do you think it was on a one to five scale? And it seems to be pretty consistent for most lifters. There's some people who don't utilize it super well. There's others that really overthink it. 
Um, both things are fine to us because we aren't always basing all decisions off of it, though. You know, if I obviously if I see that we're three weeks into a block and you're still rating everything two out of five, then things are probably a little bit too easy um, still. And, and we need to add a little bit more work or go a little bit heavier. What about using utilizing um, velocity based training to um, predicting load or predicting um, sorry um, volume or recoverable volume? Yeah, that, there's a lot of things that we can do with um, velocity. My two favorite ways to use velocity are to manage day-to-day loads uh, and also to, um, to gauge progress made as well as uh, fatigue accumulation over the course of a set, a day, or a week. So uh, the way that we would use that, I, I know you guys know this, but for listeners, um, the way that you would use velocity for gauging load, uh, the way that I use it is to look at the first rep of a set. I, I tend to not use the average of a set. It just seems to get a little messy. I'd rather use the first rep. After all, for all of my strength athletes, powerlifters, you usually only get one chance on the platform so you better make your first rep good um, and the first rep tends to have quite a bit less noise in the data so if we were to look at the last rep yeah it might be more reflective of fatigue accumulation but not necessarily of performance of the set as a whole so that's why i choose to use the first rep and it's as easy as replacing percentages with um, meters per second rating once you have a velocity profile established Next way that we would use it is to gauge progress. The, and this is the best, the best utilization of velocity, in my opinion, because you can measure progress within uh, single percentages. And um, say week one, Gus, you know, you're pressing 315 or around 110 kilos. Uh, week two, you press the same weight. Week three, maybe you increased it five kilos or 10 pounds. Be really hard to see if you made any progress there but if we looked at your mm. velocity and we could see speed improvements we would know unequivocally that you've adapted and, and made progress there and you don't even have to have kyle and i were actually just having a side discussion about this you actually don't even need a velocity profile to to use this function of velocity if you look at uh, a 100th meter of a second that's roughly one percent bar load it's not exact but it's pretty close um, so if, if you go up uh, in speed by one one hundredth of a percent uh, or a meters per second, rather, uh, you've gotten about one percent better, which matters, especially for strength athletes. Yeah. Well, I've started yeah. doing actually not funny you said that because I started doing that with some of my um, well, two of my athletes now I have we haven't done a haven't done a profile, but I said just start tracking and um, it's just giving me good data based off how I'm going to progress yeah. them week to week. It's great for people who, um, as you know, Gus, if, if, for for your athletes who don't move consistently, maybe they don't hit consistent squat depth, maybe they uh, round their back and really try and yank deadlifts on lighter weights, their velocity feedback is going to be all over the board because they're going to have very light, ultra-fast reps, and then they're going to get stapled with reps that they should be nailing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times I won't even use profiles for those guys, uh, but I will still use velocity to, to look at their improvements from week to week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll use velocity loss as a measurement of neuromuscular fatigue over the course of a set or over the course of a week even. A week is a little messy and you have to be pretty specific with where you're looking at that, but uh, based on velocity loss from set to set, and I'm still looking at the first rep velocity here again, 
uh, we can gauge um, the fatigue accumulation that has been accumulated uh, throughout that training session. So you'll look at, let's say for an example, you had six, seven sets of bench or whatever, and you'd look at the velocity loss over those, over those sets, or you're looking at mm-hmm. all the sets over the entire, entire week? Um, there, you can do both. Uh, over the entire week, you just have to have good data collection and management of those to, to make it useful. Mm-hmm. I don't typically do it unless I really want to, you know, there's, I have so many other indicators, including just talking to athletes. You know, you don't always need a data point. You can just talk to people. Um, but for a lot of our distance clients, it really helps to use um, velocity loss. Sometimes I don't even program by it. I just want to know what it is mm-hmm. so that I can see how much fatigue they've accumulated. Like if I've, I've had guys who do, you know, a five by five, which to me is kind of a lot of sets. It's not ultra high, but it's not low. It's, it's a decent amount of sets, it's a decent amount of hard sets. Their velocity loss will be very, very low. And it's obviously, even though it's perceptively to me, it seems like a lot of sets, it's not enough for that person. Uh, on the other hand, I might have a guy who does, you know, two to three sets and he loses 10% velocity from start to finish. And that's plenty for him. And, there, and there's a myriad of reasons that that could be caused, uh, whether it's, you know, previous training fatigue that's been accumulated, whether it's um, even their mindset coming in. Uh, maybe they just sandbagged it. Um, maybe they didn't eat well. Maybe they didn't sleep well. Maybe they're just trying to rush to get out of there. There's, there's a lot of factors that influence that. I think you're right what you said before that um, and then I guess something I've noticed too when you're collecting huge amounts of data is still come back to the roots of all the subjective data I collect just so, simply by talking to them, getting their, you know, by feedback how they, um, yeah. how their life's going, stress and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's super important. I, I like having, it'd be nice to have a, the perfect data metric for everything but it, it just doesn't exist. You know, you want to have a handful of really actionable data points that can drive decision making and then beyond that, you have a conversation with the person mm-hmm. and that's going to fill in a lot of, of, of what's going on with that person. And Gus, I think that's, uh, I was going to bring up the magic buzzword that people like to talk a lot about, uh, but, you know, heard you bring up, uh, you know, recoverable volume. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really excited on that as an indicator when it came out. Um, but more and more I've, I've really walked away from, and I wanted to be that guy, like, can we figure out exact amount of maximum recoverable volume for each athlete and each type of athlete from fighters to powerlifters, all this. Um, and right now I feel like it's even better climate to bring that up because with all of the extra stressors in life, I might have, you know, you or my own training, somebody else who can normally handle a bunch of training. And then all of a sudden one week that data went out the window. And it goes back to, you know, I have these these pieces, I have the volume I know that I like to push them at or what I think they can handle, but the conversation still needs to come back to, you know, where are they currently at um, physically, mentally, rest, recovery, sleep, how is this all tying together, especially once again in this current climate, it could be just the stress of somebody thinking about losing their gym, um, you know, or their gym shutting down again and not having a place to train, that whole session's gone. Um, so recoverable volume in a perfect world. Um, yes, I think it's a, a better indicator and better data, but we're not in test tubes, right? And, uh, with a lot of extra stress and, and, uh, other issues going on, uh, I feel like that's less and less important right now. Uh, and more so just speaking with the athlete and looking what they're doing on not a day-to-day basis, but, um, you know, quick snapshot of a week, but more weeks compared to each other's, a bigger snapshot would be a month, but keeping a close eye on that so we can, uh, monitor it and make it customized for that individual athlete. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. I didn't think that through. But obviously, the current climate will be causing a hell of a lot of stress for a lot of people, and that that all makes sense, right? And that as a knock-on effect, people are losing sleep. Um, it all kind of goes out the window, right? I didn't think that through, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm, it's funny you say that because, like, I, I was going through kind of the exact same thing with the. It's like, is there a way to exactly calculate? maximal recoverable volume from this and um a few with a few attempts with a few attempts of it the same things kind of happened things just got thrown out the window when things change and just go back to my old um methodology of just being well like like you said brandon just talking to them and then you kind of get your best gauge make the best decision based off all the information you know about them or just not um just how you know them as an athlete um yeah, I think um, I think looking at someone's acute to chronic workload ratio is probably more useful than their maximum recoverable volume. Mm-hmm. Um, although they're those are they're two very similar topics, but they are slightly different. The um, chronic to acute workload ratio, um, your chronic workload is a rolling average of work, however you choose to define work. It could be volume. It could be number of hard sets. Um, it could be some combination of volume and difficulty. Uh, there's a few ways that you could potentially quantify work. If you really wanted to quantify work, you would probably use range of motion and loads um, you know, to quantify work. That would be a more accurate, but not. We don't have the ability to really do that unless we, uh, unless our some velocity devices do spit out work as a as a um, as a metric. I think Jimware does. There's probably other ones that do. Um, and then we look at the acute spikes of workload within there, and that gives us a very accurate picture of what type of a stimulus is applied comparatively to what the athlete has been exposed to. So if somebody's acute stimulus or acute workload has been doubled, we'll see that huge spike over their chronic. Their chronic workload should be right around the acute, if not slightly lower most of the time, um, because it is a rolling average. But it's going to tell us more, uh, more or less how the trend over time has affected that athlete. And then we can overlay the average load increases during that time. Um, and I think that's a very good way to look at um, what type of stimulus has been applied to um, what individual in the, in the magnitudes therein. Like if someone keeps getting beat up and you're like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're still only squatting once a week or whatever, but maybe... You know, you didn't catch three weeks ago that they went from squatting, you know, once a week to twice a week and you maybe unintentionally doubled their volume of their knee extensors and that caused knee pain or something. You know, mm-hmm. you'd be able to see that in, in, in a in a graph like that, which is why I think it's useful. Do you think something like that would be more contributed to not sometimes just volume, but just um, just the frequency itself? Yeah, it could be. Um, there's, you know, fatigue is is a thing that's not easily quantifiable because um, there's many things that influence it. It's like many people use the analogy of, of stress, you know, and you only have a bucket so big that you can dump it into before it overflows. Fatigue's pretty similar. It's, it's hard to determine what appreciable fatigue is or what l- too little fatigue is. Um, I think frequency does matter but you know if you 
squat 135 every day, nothing's going to happen to you. So it's kind of about figuring out where that level of appreciable stimulus starts and ends. Um, and then trying to balance a week uh, within that context because you still got to fit other things in there. Would you consider progress within chronic fatigue? So, I mean, personally, like when I, when I, especially coming into comp prep where people are starting to, you can tell they're getting more and more fatigued, but then they seem to get a little bit weaker, but then start to get stronger again whilst in, because they're showing all the signs of, showing all the signs of fatigue, but because we come into competition, I'm keeping them going because I know where we're going to start to pull back and restore them mm -hmm. coming into competition. Um, is there something you guys similarly do, keep them in fatigue? Yeah, um, it, it depends on the it depends on the person. Kyle's laughing because he's probably that person. <laughs> uh, it depends on who we have. The only time I try not to do that is if the individual that I'm working with has a history of injuries specific to the movements they're doing. So if I have a guy who has you know debilitating bicep pain when they bench press and squat, or they have terrible knee pain when they squat, and then it creeps into their deadlifts. I'm not going to push their fatigue thresholds that high. They're just going to continue to train within their tolerable range. It's kind of a nice tool to have in your back pocket to try to, um, to try to ease along super compensation. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a risky thing. You have to do kind of a risk analysis before you use that with somebody. If, if I have a healthy individual, um, and they're progressing, uh, in their average loading, I'm okay, you know, going with one or two really hard weeks where we're going to push you beyond your recovery capabilities. And then we'll go into a more controlled taper period. Um, but the other part of that too is, um, you know, the other side of that is it's challenging to gauge taper length and, and a reduction in volume. If you're consistently changing training plan, work and volume, um, if somebody is carrying dramatically varied levels of fatigue, it can be very hard to gauge at what point that you take away training load does your training adaptation decay too quickly. Um, so for example, if I have someone who's squatting five times a week, uh, which I have, haven't had too many people ever do that. If I did though, um, and then I had them go to zero times a week because it was a deload, they would decay very, very quickly in their training adaptation. Um, so when it comes to doing things like overload weeks or impact weeks or, you know, weeks that, uh, force the athlete to reach beyond an overreaching week, reach beyond their recovery capabilities. Uh, you just have to be mindful as well as uh, what the taper length is going to be and, and how effective that can actually uh, be implemented. I think one of the other important pieces in there, um, not to sound like I'm jumping down the psychology road all day here, right, but we're talking a lot of science and theory. But on the other side of it, uh, and Gus, you know this real well from your own training, if I have an athlete who can take that Physically is one thing, right? I can't break my athlete, but if they can take it mentally and they know that if they push and numbers drop a little bit and they stick to the course, they're going to springboard and they're probably going to hit some best numbers ever. If the athlete's not that mentally tough and they can't handle seeing numbers drop, regardless of what I want to gain out of super compensation, I might've just tanked them um, mentally before the meet, before competition. And now it's, it's, it's worse off because they're second guessing everything. Or on that same note, it got so tough 
they don't want to play anymore. And they're like, I can't keep pushing at this rate. I'm done. I've given up. And they pull back to protect themselves or their own mental state. So um, it really kind of becomes, you know, knowing your athlete once again and knowing, can I push them a physically that hard, but me mentally that hard? Will they come out better on the other end? You know, Duffin's a good example of that. Um, his last squat cycle, I saw him struggle a couple times mentally, um, but he always comes out 10 times stronger on the other side. Right. He will prevail. You can't stop that guy. A beginner athlete, maybe their first or second meet, that could be them never competing again. So, mm. yeah, I find I, I find it, I find, and you look at the entire athlete's career that, you know, you have this, I have this kind of end point where, you know, at an elite level, you, when they get closer to a competition, I know they, they know the result of what is going to come from their training and how they're going to feel. And they had, so they had that expectation. Um, so yeah. I kind of a similar thing where from competition to competition, I'm pushing that barrier closer and closer and closer, but also using the competition as a way to get to a create, to have enough drive to push through some of the very high volume, high intensity, high intensity stuff, because they have the motivation to get to that competition regardless of whether it's something like that in the off season. I mean, it's pretty easy to just want to stop. Using yeah, guys I have definitely a, agree with all of that. Mm. I think a part of it too comes down to, um, transparency and in, in the intent of training because um, if you just blow someone up who might not be super mentally resilient they mm -hmm. might assume that they are should just you know trains just going as normal and they don't know why they're you know getting more beat up or hurt and uh, i've had a few athletes who it's been pretty disastrous with that we've tried that with and but uh, you know you just kind of learn working with different personalities as well who can tolerate what and, and when it's appropriate to really push and when it's a good idea to hold back. I think that, do you guys have systems of profiling uh, individuals? Um, we, outside of our athlete profile, um, we don't have specific systems for categorizing athletes. So our athlete profiles are going to ask quite a few questions uh, amongst um, their training history, goals, experience, expectations, and things of that nature. Um, and of course, we look at their movement. So I, I've, I like, I like the idea of having like a hierarchy of categories that people fit into. But I also feel like it's hard to define the complexity of a person and how they interact with a training plan or or anything. And it, and it is subject to change as well. Uh, one thing I've been really interested in is um, personality typing for strength training plans. I haven't done a ton of work on it, but it's always been something that's been kind of in the back of my mind that I think could be interesting. Um, you know, the, the, there's many different people uh, communicate differently. Some people like to be taught exhaustively. Um, people like to know the whys behind things. Other people, they don't even want to hear you talk and they just want the plan. Mm. And so you're going to drive away 50% of those people if you keep your language the same across all people. It also comes down to what type of um, training program they have. Some personalities seek um, a variety more often. Some personalities seek a higher intensity of not, not necessarily training load, but a higher in intensity mm. in terms of output they're people who don't necessarily love the process they love the outcome uh, and those again are two separate personalities that will respond slightly differently to a training plan they'll still do the same stuff but 
if I have Duffin again is a good example of this because he's a he's an egomaniac. And uh, if you if you tell him, oh, you know, trust the process, enjoy the process, he, de- he doesn't want to do it. Uh, he's a guy who likes to compete every single day. And if you don't give them an outlet to compete, you know, they become bored. It feels more like a chore. Training isn't the same type of outlet. So understanding the personality of the person you have in front of you is pretty important. And for the athlete sizes, in terms of the amount of athletes our coaches are working with, we get to know them on a pretty individual basis. So I haven't really found the need to create that yet, but I think it could be something very, very useful, especially to get new athletes paired with the proper coach. I found the um, personality profiling quite interesting. It's something I have started to look into quite a bit. And um, it, it kind of explains some of the phenomenon I see. And like you, you've said, you can start to know the people who, who are highly competitive, people who respond better to volume, people who respond, who like intensity, who like variety, who like consistency. And these um, personality types have been a really good way to gauge because they used to fit, it fits with, their personality type seemed to fit a certain um, neurotransmitter profile, which then had a response to, which had uh, a favourable, I guess, what they enjoy doing, enjoy training. So if they're competitive mm-hmm. competitive in nature, they tend to want to push themselves with intensity. And um, some of the stuff I've been looking to is that they're starting to have a, um, uh, a, a, a nervous system response to to training so who who recovers well from intensity uh who recovers well from volume or who finds themselves bored or people with high anxiety require like require more static steady programming where someone who is a novelty seeker would want something different changes than in competition so i i personally have found it i've only looked into it the last two years or so and have found it um, explained a lot of things, which kind of just was left to intuition um, yeah. to now yeah. having a science. Yeah. For sure. As a good coach too, you have that intuition. Mm. Um, I think all good coaches, you know, they have experience, but they also have an intuition mm. within when presented a certain amount of variables within a person. But yeah, I think it could be really useful. And it's not to say that your personality might not, and I don't really know the answer to this, it may or may not directly influence physiologically how a stimulus um, changes you. But if you enjoy the training more, you're likely to try to get to bed a little earlier. You're likely to enjoy all of the other things. You're likely to take an extra step in your movement work. And that combined makes a much more effective plan if you're more excited to get to the gym. If you're just a happier person in general, your training is probably going to go better because... Mm. Uh, you have less surrounding fatigue. So I think it's something that's pretty interesting. And that's probably one of the next bigger areas, I think, that'll be broken into um, in the online coaching type world. Yeah, for sure. I found it. I think I think you're I think you probably hit it hit it on the head there. And I think this is just the approach of, you know, even before all this is just need to enjoy training or you're just not going to come in with the right right intent. Yeah, I, I found too that because um, we, we've done some personality testing here at our company, just from a from a company standpoint to get to know our employees better, and it kind of gets you it, if you uh, you know know your results of your personality test, it can even get you to get to know yourself a little bit better, why you have certain tendencies mm. or biases, and can help you kind of overcome uh, difficulties you may have in communicating with other people. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a very interesting topic that I'm not nearly. Uh, well versed enough in. I was about to say that there are significant parallels there with what they do in the corporate world. 
But I mean, they, they tend to use it as a mechanism to try and get people to not enjoy a job, but perform well in a job that they fundamentally don't want. To, they don't want to fucking be there, right? So they obviously do a lot. Of, like this character profiling is coming in a lot in terms in workplaces because if you don't want to be there, especially, I mean. I, I don't understand anybody who wants to sit in a cubicle, but I mean, if you really don't want to be there, like that's a massive way for you to work out how to motivate those people to do that. And it's, it's done a lot in, 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 in kind of the corporate world. So it, it is an interesting crossover potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so much now too, with social media and things like that, everybody has a unique voice. It's not like yeah. Yeah. 50 years ago where you, you fit or you, you know, starve. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that will probably grow in popularity across many strength coaches. I guess, uh, to change topic a little bit, um, there's something that I personally wanted to learn, understand, understand more. Now I have been getting people to work. I watch a lot of your stuff on, on footwork and how we get, you know, we start getting a lot more people to how to utilize their feet a little bit better in all their lifts. Um, what are some of the, I guess, methods to someone, to someone who has a very, I guess, a very weak foot or very hard to control? I mean, are there specific exercises or things that you do to help specifically just the foot itself? Yeah, um, there definitely is. So the foot, just like any other area of the body has to be strong and mobile. Um, feet are not just pegs to be stood upon. They should be muscular. They should be able to bend and flex and grab in many people's feet. Uh, can't do that uh, for a lot of reasons. The biggest one of which is uh, shoes are designed by companies to look good, not function well. Um, you know, Nike shoes are absolutely terrible even though that's the only shoe I wear because Kyle keeps giving me free Nikes and he doesn't want to wear. <laughs> I think I've gone through like eight pairs of Megacons now that Kyle doesn't want. This is a true story. Uh, but I spend enough time barefoot too that it doesn't really matter and I've never had an issue. But, you know, a lot of people also choose shoes based on their length and not even their width. And those yeah. are, width is just as important as length, if not even um, more so. Yeah, it's a good thing it's not the, the Mark Bell podcast because that discussion might have gone in a different direction. Uh, anyway, we're back on track. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, useful foot drills to do. I mean, there the simplest thing is to be barefoot more. Obviously, that's not going to solve all of your problems. You are going to have to do some if your feet are really locked up. If you uh, have toes that kind of overlap, or if you can't spread your toes without the aid of your hands or other implements, uh, then you probably need your feet to be a bit more mobile and strong. If you can't control your arch through supination and pronation, you probably need stronger feet. Your your foot is should not just be a big arch. It should be able to uh, maintain contact with the ground through ranges of supination or or like rolling to the outside, you should still be able to maintain contact uh, and you should still be able to maintain contact in pronation. It's uh, anytime we see someone who rolls their foot to the inside or to the outside and it, it looks like a two by four that just kind of rolls, that's a big problem. And it right. tells us that their foot is very immobile. It's very structurally weak and they're likely uh, have very bound up ankles because of it. ankle 
mobility is a complete output of your foot strength and mobility. It doesn't have much to do with anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and if your feet are structurally weak, your ankle tightens up to prevent you from going into uh, potentially harmful ranges of motion for your knees and for your hips. So you know, all these things are connected, right? Um, and we find that there's a really close connection between how the foot functions and how the hip functions. If we have dysfunction at the hip, you're almost always going to see it at the foot as well. Almost always. Um, if you have plantar fasciitis, you probably have glutes that don't work really well either. So not, there's not a single area of the body that is completely isolated in function. It's all a system. It's all works in coordination and your feet are especially true to that, which is why we focus so much of our education around improving foot strength, um, mobility. Kyle can probably talk more to the anatomy of the foot and why that's important, but you know, there's some huge number of muscles in the foot, huge number of bones, all of which need to move and, and function um, as units. And we find that, um, you know, people who have either spent tons of time training in like Chuck Taylor's or they have, uh, you know, maybe they have spent a lot of time wearing uh, more business type shoes that tend to be more for looks and function. You know, they they have a lot of work to do to overcome that. So there's tons of drills. Um, I don't know that I can name a single one that I love more than anything else. I'm a huge fan of uh, barefoot split squats, hip airplanes, barefoot squats, things that intentionally load yourself in a minimal um, environment. So basically, if they can just train more on bare feet and they have a bit, would, would build better function? Yeah, that that's a huge component to it. Um, I don't think it's a catch-all because if you have very egregious or very poor hip function or foot function, it's not going to improve just by being barefoot. Yeah, so and if you're three hundred. <clears throat> yeah, if yeah. you're three hundred and fifty pounds and you walk like a duck, like it's yeah. and you you never address the root causes, it's being barefoot is not going to help you. Yeah, and those are the problem ones that I guess I come I come across because I get a lot of my athletes pretty much training training bare, bare, bare feet, and um, it's the ones that come in. And usually, uh, usually it's usually the business business guys or business women who are constantly in shoes and have a very, very dysfunctional foot and mm. um, no amount of bare feet or, or cueing or or anything is 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 changing that, even to the point where, you know, I try to get them – I even get them to think about – I had one one chick just uh, just try to get her to think about a tripod, tripod foot and instantly cramps. Mm -hmm. um, so what about individuals like like that? Are there – is there any like – is there any release work or exercises straight away where, where someone, someone's that dysfunctional that they just cramp? Yeah. Cramping is a sign of a very weak foot. And anytime someone, even at our seminars, we have a lot of people who this is a new topic too, and they start doing some foot drills, their foot immediately cramps up and becomes time. Like, dude, your feet are super weak. Like I, this, that I'm very blunt with it too. I'm like, this is, it's not because you're dehydrated. It's not because of this. It's, it's literally because your foot is, is very weak and can't control that position. So, uh, but with anything, um, it's about scaling load appropriately um, and spending more time in joint angles and positions that they struggle in. So for the foot, uh, it's very easy to stand barefoot. Um, it's very easy just to kind of stand here and do nothing. But as soon as you introduce hip flexion or ankle flexion, uh, standing barefoot becomes much harder. So we spend time going through segments of movement and spending time within those segments to get better at those positions. Um, we can torture them with different foot strength drills, whether they're with bands 
or whether they are even with towels grabbing them or uh, even motor control type drills. But um, if someone's cramping up a lot, it's a really good sign that they need to do more footwork. Like your feet really should not cramp after uh, minimal activity like that. So um, yeah, there, there's a ton of things you can do, but I, I tend to just go to spending more time in those positions that they struggle in. It's an interesting point bringing up, uh, you know, cramping. Um, and, and I have to super, uh, supersede this with intent. I think intent's one thing. So, um, you know, a lot of people know us for our footwork um, and how diligent we are on, on the feet. It's like anything else. An athlete has to have buy-in to that. Um, if they kind of believe it, but they don't really, they're like, yeah, whatever feet. Now I'm just going to go stand up and down with a bar on my back. If they don't put the intent in, they'll never get better. We can show them rooting drills. We can show them, you know, one of my favorites, putting the floss band underneath their foot um, and pulling on it while they're squatting. That's great when I have them in person, but then if I watch them squat two weeks later and they're just standing up and down off their feet, they don't either have the buy-in or they're not putting the intent into it. So a lot of uh, foot dysfunction, regardless of how they got it, shoes, um, you know, whatever the case may be, um, you know, they don't sit a lot, they don't, or they sit a lot, they don't walk around a lot, dress shoes, um, you know, whatever, whatever created this dysfunction. I don't have any specific foot exercises that I do because I simply want them to get better in the specific movement like Brandon. So we have a bunch of different drills, but as far as exercises, and I just pulled it up on my, uh, my Instagram, the only time I prescribe specific foot exercises is if we have foot pain and dysfunction, as in like a plantar fasciitis, something like that. Mm. Um, so as a reference point, you can go peek at those. Any listeners can go peek at those. It is on the Kabuki Virtual Coaching. It's also on my page. We did uh, part one, two, and three of foot and lower leg pain and dysfunction. And it covers soft tissue, some of our KMS principles, um, some stretches, some unique stretches and strengthening drills. Um, but really any starting place I would tell any athlete is you have to understand why your foot's so important. And every single rep, if you're not good at rooting every single rep, you have to be mindful and very intent in making your foot do its job and do a good and making it do its job better. Or it's simply never going to get better because it's just this post that you're standing on. And you're just pushing into the ground and, and standing up and down. Yeah, it's all inter it's all very interesting. Um, how much how much dysfunction you can find throughout the body just from starting with the foot, um, or working from the working from the bottom up. Um, yeah, Johnson that's why we've got such good great such great results over time. You know, with uh, with that area, people think we're magic, but you know, it's just your foot. I'm not telling you, and that's why I don't have specific strengthening exercises. Mm. I don't have this one magic foot exercise. Just simply please use your foot better and make it healthier, and you'll get great results. Mm. Um, I guess uh, there is – we're coming close to our hour mark. There yeah. is oh, yeah. one one question I, um, I've been starting to ask everyone because it's been a hot, hot topic here in Australia, and it's been, um, I guess, annoying me or triggering me. What is your guys' views on um, shin angle on the deadlift? Hmm. Is that specific to – I have to ask – I think I know where you're going with this, but I have to ask, is that specific to conventional or conventional. deadlift or both? Sorry, conventional. conventional or sumo or both? Conventional. I think it really depends on the femur length and probably the torso length of the person. Um, I think if you have somebody – and 
there's other factors that likely influence too, in, including the depth of someone's hip capsule. So depth of hip capsule and, and how far the femur can articulate in the hip capsule is largely going to determine how deep somebody can squat with a neutral shin and an upright torso. Um, so there's many factors that influence that position. I don't think that uh, it's similarly to squat stance. I don't know that there is a single position that's best. I don't think a parallel up and down shin is achievable by many people. Um, but I also don't think a knees forward position is good. Um, there's something right in the middle that is, I, I almost look at uh, hip position and the, um, the position of the spine more than anything. If I have, I want the hips to be, not, I wouldn't say as low as possible, but low with a neutral spine. Um, that doesn't mean squatting because at some point it's usually going to be about slightly lower than an RDL position to where they start to round their back. Sometimes they can push their knees forward a little bit to get a little bit more, but usually not. So I almost don't ever look at shin position unless it's something really egregious. But I think factors in femur length, the depth of hip capsule and the torso length really matter for how parallel someone's shin can be, as well as even just their height and arm length. Those are also huge factors. So there, I don't know that there's any one indicator and, and not one best position. It's, 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 it's certainly a, a very small range of acceptable tolerance, I believe. Um, that's okay. Yeah, I have a hard time um, with any lift, bench, squat, deadlift, overhead press, any, any lift, um, looking at one specific uh, thing. And years ago, when I was a, a younger coach and younger trainer, um, I thought there was that one magic angle for right, the powerlifting squat. Um, and I quickly learned over time that there's not. One of the things I think that uh, Kabuki does pretty good, especially when it comes to hot topics like this, you probably won't find us very far on, on one side or the other. Um, and that goes right into my discussion of range. One of our favorite slot, my favorite slides from our seminars is a, is a range scale, right? So somewhere in here would be a, uh, a, an optimal, I almost said perfect, an optimal uh, position for the spine. We could carry this, uh, this conversation over to shins. Most people would probably agree that somewhere in here is the best. When you get too far this way or too far that way, it's just too extreme and it's not going to be good for you. One of the other things that uh, on that same note that changes changes my mind um, is, you know, the individual uh, will change over time. And like myself, and, and I'm getting slightly off topic here, but with a sumo stance in my sumo, it's changed over time. Um, I used to think that I have this perfect stance. Well, my hips are tighter than they used to be, and I can't pull from that stance that I used to. But I'm a stronger athlete. So is my new stance better or my old one? I don't know. They both worked for me at one point in time. My conventional stance has also changed over time. I think it used to be a better stance, but I'm a stronger athlete now. So can we really determine which one was better? Yeah, And that's where I won't weigh in too far on one side because even there's a lot of individuality between um, different athletes, but even in our own body, um, as we gain weight, as we lose weight, our leverages might need to be slightly different, which puts us in a different position. Mm -hmm. And one of the other reasons I'm really not picky on stuff like this, I personally don't get a lot of change from a uh, shin angle, uh, especially with most intermediate or lower level lifters. 
Um, there's so much more that I see that they're doing wrong, like the foot, right? Or they're breathing and bracing. I think I can get a lot more out of spending my time and energy there versus changing, chasing the ideal shin angle or the ideal, you know, squat stance, going back to squat as an example. So um, to recap, you know, for me, um, there's probably a pretty good angle that most strength coaches could agree on. This would be worse. This would be worse. Somewhere in here is probably closer to better, um, but that's also going to change over time as an athlete grows and ages and, and does other things in their career. I think we could be uh, probably better off as strength coaches chasing our big fish first and making sure breathing, bracing, rooting, our big players are hammered down before looking at, uh, you know, making our athletes stand in some obscure, perfect angle. I think that's the perfect answer. <laughs> the answer that's, what, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem is, over here, people are one side or the other, and it's like being part of a political party. Like they're, they're almost yeah. fighting with each other over what's best. It's crazy. The answer is always sometimes yeah. somewhere in the middle of left and right. Hmm. You know, yeah, and, and some uh, some of these, you know, and not to pick on any coaches because I don't know anybody particular in this argument, but if you looked at some of their athletes, you could probably be like, okay, that's a nice conversation about the shin angle, mm. but they're doing step one and two horribly wrong. Mm. I think the shin angle can wait. Can we yeah. just teach yeah. them good deadlift technique before yeah. we worry about a shin angle? Um, I always looked at it and what you say, Ren, like anatom anatomy matters the most and I always have what's the, um, I kind of look at things, what is the end range of the most optimal bio um, optimal mechanical, gives you the most mechanical advantage to what is functional. And I'm always working within, within those ranges. Like there's that end goal, which I may never reach, but then there's always like, what's, what's functional for the athlete right now. And then we make those steps towards year after year, what direction we go towards. Yeah. There's a difference between what a idealized skeleton looks like in a deep squat or a deadlift mm. versus what people look like. Mm. You know, I think that an ideal squat is like just a barely forward knee position, not past toes, probably knots of your shoes, pretty near vertical shin, not quite very upright torso. These are some of the strongest squatters in existence, but uh, not many people can do that. And it's not because they don't have good mobility. They don't have good morphology to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's, I think a lot of the, you know, even things like starting strength, a lot of the education surrounding that is through idealized leverages, but it doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, it looks at lengths of, of, uh, of like femur length, torso length, shin length. And then say, based on these mechanical leverages, th this is the ideal position for maximum torque, but they don't include hip depth, the caps capsular depth, contour of the hip, many other factors that influence how deep somebody can squat as, as just another example. So I think um, there's, there's not one ideal position for anybody to be in. There's an ideal range of joint angles a person can be in, but that's not every single person for sure. This is a good conversation. And again, keep in mind that changes for an athlete over time with their career, whether they're gaining weight, losing weight, just, you know, with, again, we're talking life stressors, right? How tight are their muscles? How's the, the length tension relationship from front to back? Let alone if my athletes are getting bigger or smaller, right? Your leverage has just changed. Mm -hmm. So now you might have to manipulate um, I can't lift like I used to at 165. I'm just a bigger lifter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and that, you know, just a final point on that too. If you look at two 
elite squatters that, that come to mind of really opposing styles is uh, David Wilson and John Hack. If you look at David Wilson, I mean, he is stretching out a, his power rack with how wide his feet are. He only weighs, I think he might be a 231 competitor. I think he's only at 205 though. Um, but he is essentially squatting like you would squat in a multiply suit, but that's just how his hips function. Mm. And if we look at guys like John Hack, who have a very narrow stance, knees are past their toes. Um, they're still squatting close to 800 pounds, 750 pounds. So you can't tell me that one style is idealized over the other because there's so many individual components to morphology that have to be. And even, even if it's not morphology, say the way somebody breathes. So if I have somebody who is, you know, really locked up, a real chest breather, their thoracic spine is going to become less and less mobile over time. That person probably squats a little bit differently because of that, not even just their limb length. So there's too many things to consider. And that's why we never promote the Kabuki strength style of squatting or deadlifting. We use guiding principles to, inf to inform positions. And those are Got to brace well, got to breathe well, got to have strong and mobile feet. And then there's other things, of course, with shoulders and hips, but, you know, do those things right. And your body's usually going to do the right thing. What a great answer. Yeah, I think that is the perfect, shit, perfect yeah. approach. Yeah. I just have to highlight that real quick because Brandon stole my answer. Um, <laughs> but but to highlight it, because it is very important, we see, you know, people come to our seminars. Hey, can you teach me, you know, how Chris Duffin squats? Can you teach me the Kabuki squat? And we're like, there, there is no such thing because... And it's great there because we have, you know, athletes of all different shapes and sizes. Um, but we stick to our principles and, you know, our five-step setup process, if you will, for squat, for example. And it leads great results across all athlete types, body shapes and sizes. So we're not teaching the kabuki way because there is no kabuki squat. We're teaching you the principles to be successful in your own body, once again, as it changes over time. Mm -hmm. Yes, I always find you seem to find yourself stuck in a stigma sometimes of like your method. Um, and because yeah, and I do things slightly different here, usually just because it's based off based off evidence and some old school ways are still exist around here. And so it's like, oh, that is your method. And you're going to get stuck with that stigma. But the thing is, no answer was no answer was right or wrong. It's just sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. Um, yeah, depending on the individual. Right. So, yeah. That's exactly right. All right. Well, cool. yeah, we're probably, we're probably going to have to wrap it up. We're into an hour and 10 territory now. So that was awesome. I barely contributed. I just sat there listening, taking it in. That was, that was brilliant. Thank you so much guys for uh, giving, giving us the time to run one of these. So can't wait to put this one yeah. up. Yeah. Really really appreciate it. Mm. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks guys.